This morning, would you turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 will begin in verse 4 today. We are in the middle of our series on 1 Peter entitled Sojourners, Faithful Living on the Journey Home. And Peter has written a letter to Christians calling them exiles. And he's telling them that their earthly life is temporary. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter is writing this letter that's preparing these people for future suffering and persecution. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, let me read this to you. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is God's word. Last week we began exploring 1 Peter chapter 2, but we didn't finish, and like I said last week, that many people in our current culture think that the local church is obsolete. Maybe some even think it's too institutional, and others, they see the church as an, an embarrassment. They, they think that the church is not relevant to the Christian experience and practice, and this passage of Scripture, like we began last week, answers the question, how can the local church be relevant? This, this text speaks to us about what the church is and then the tension between the church and the current culture and then what to do about that tension. So number one, the church is more than a building. We looked at this last week. It's, it's about people, and you've heard us say this over and over and over again through the years in an Verses 4 and 5 in our text, there is a phrase in verse 5, being built. It's a present tense phrase that we are presently being built together. Like a brick wall, that every brick has a place in the wall that all the other bricks are connected to. And bricks in a wall are heavily dependent on one another. The bricks above you and below you and alongside of you. They're all dependent on one another, and we're these living stones or, or, or bricks in a building, in a wall. 
Most Christians in America, when they come to Sunday worship like we're here today, they come with more of a consumer mindset. They come for the good teaching or the good music. They come for good friendships or good religious education for their children. But as a Christian, you're a living stone. You're part of something bigger than yourself. You're connected with other living stones. And if you were missing, we said this last week, would the wall collapse? Would the, would the building fall down? In a church, not necessarily for a Sunday worship gathering, but the people, the living stones in the church, we share successes and we share victories. We share struggles and pains. We share burdens. We share homes with one another. We share money. We share mission. We share tears. We share laughter together. And you cannot expect God to work in your life without embodying the reality of being a gathering of living stones together, making up the household of God, which is his church. Now, God's design for his church is that she would be a community of people who worship and serve in our mission together. But how do we relate? So that's the church, living stones, built together, the household of God. So how do we relate to the world outside, the current culture? And this is where we left off last week. Number one, the church is people. It's more than a building. And number two, starting our sermon today, is we're going to talk about the remarkable tension between the church and the world. This tension between the church and the world. The church is an, is an intensely communal community. Maybe that's redundant, but it is. It's an intensely communal experience, community. And it, if this is the case, how do we relate, how do we as living stones, as a community of God, relate to those outside of this household? There is a tension that exists between the church and current culture. I had a great friend. He's in, he's in heaven now, but I had a great friend who was a Christian cultural anthropologist. And he and I would have long conversations, hours and hours and hours of conversation, conversations over many days and years, but about how the church relates to the world. And he would tell me that the church is either sectarian, is the way he put it, exclusive, that they would be sectarian, where doctrine or belief is primary. He says either the church is sectarian or it's mainstream. It's inclusive, almost no doctrinal requirements. So he would say that most churches generally find themselves in one of these two groups, either sectarian, that's exclusive, or mainstream, which is inclusive. But what does the Bible say about how the church should be? Sectarian or mainstream? And the Bible would say neither. In verses 11 and 12 of our text in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter uses this phrase over and over again through this letter, foreigners and exiles. The first thing 
we're told as Christians is that we're not to assimilate into the world's culture. We're the household of God, and there's the culture, the world out there, and we're not to assimilate that way. You're not to be like the culture around you. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if this is true of you. How many of you are native South Bay people? Raise your hand. Okay, now look around at at each other. Look around at each other. Native South Bay people. How many of you, keep your hands up. Sorry, little exercise this morning for your shoulder. Um, How many of you um, have lived in the South Bay more uh, more than, uh, how many of you have lived in the South Bay? South Bay, my shoulder hurts too. Uh, how many, I'll get this up. How many of you have lived in the South Bay 15 years? Raise your hand. Okay, so look around. Look, look around. These are, these are the indigenous tribe. This is the indigenous tribe of, of the South Bay. Okay, you can put your hands down now. You probably embody, if you had your hand raised, you probably embody, um, how do we say this, aspects of South Bay culture. And, and you could think of what that would be in your mind. It's, it's not a stereotype. It's there's sort of a aspects of South Bay culture. If you had your hand raised, been here 15 years, maybe born and raised, grew up here. So if that were you, how would you feel if someone came up to you and said, although you're a South Bayer, you were to live as a foreigner wherever you're at? here in the South Bay. How, how do you do that? Because if you've been here, you were born, raised here, you've lived here for a long time, how do you then start thinking about yourself as a foreigner? And this is what Peter's saying. To the Greeks in the Greek cities, Peter's writing this. To the Romans in the Roman cities, Peter's writing this. To those who have generation upon generation upon generation of families that lived in the same region, Peter's writing this letter and he's saying, you're to be like foreigners and exiles. And that is what they're reading here. He's provocative in so many ways. We, we read from, uh, from early church history, there is a man named Suetonius who was... Uh, observer of the Christian lifestyle and experience of that day. He was a pagan Roman historian, and he writes this. He writes, Christians are a genus of men with a novel and wicked superstition. It's interesting, isn't it? That's his observation. And, and, and he uses this word genus, and he's writing like Christians are a different species. He sees that. You're, you're a different type of human species. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say that to a group of people who are indigenous people living in those cities, Roman cities and Greek cities? Because Christians would not just keep their Christianity private. It shaped and it changed the the way they they lived. So how did the early Christians live? What, What was that like? And I there's a list that, that I've, I pulled out of a, a commentary of gospel-centered values of, of early Christians. Let's take a look at this. This is what the, what the, a list of how the early Christians lived. The first thing is they did not celebrate pagan festivals, and so they were thought to be antisocial. Second is they did not serve in the military to support Caesar's conquests, and so they were thought to be 
not loyalists, but he thought to be anti-political. Number three, they believed in the sanctity of human life because abortion and the killing of infants was just commonplace in that day and allowed. In fact, if you were a family in the current culture of that day and you had a baby and you didn't like that the baby was a certain gender, that you would take that baby and you would just put it in a field. There was a common field where they would just leave babies and walk away and that child would die of exposure. Well, the Christians, if you read in, in early church writings, would sort of hide out and when someone would leave a baby in that field because they didn't want that baby anymore, the Christians in the cover of darkness would run out and grab that baby and take him home, take her home, and raise that child as their own. They valued and respected and honored women when the current culture of that day did not. They were against sex outside of the marriage covenant. They dignified and cared for the poor. They welcomed all people, regardless of race and class, socioeconomic class or culture. And they believed that Jesus was the only way to salvation, where the, the world's culture at that time believed in many gods and idols, and, and, but the Christians believed that Jesus was the only way to salvation. And no one in that day had ever seen a group like this before. They were neither liberal nor conservative. If you look at this list in, in, in today's view and you say, wow, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty liberal value there, or that's a very conservative value. See, they, they weren't neither liberal nor conservative. They weren't Republican or Democrat here. They were alien. They were resident aliens in that day. And they had this balanced lifestyle that Peter writes about. In verse 12 of our text, Peter writes, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is essentially what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that you are sitting on a hill, your salt and light, that the world might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So as a Christian, if you assimilate into the world and the current culture, you don't suffer because no one sees you as different. No one persecutes you. No one accuses you. So as a Christian, if you assimilate in the world's culture, there's no suffering. And as a Christian, if you withdraw from the world's culture and no one sees your lifestyle at all, you don't suffer either. But what if you don't assimilate or withdraw and maintain a gospel-centered lifestyle, the values, and then you open up to the current culture you engage them, you serve them, you draw close, you love your neighbor, you love your enemy, and you love those who are different. What, what about that? And Peter says, this is what will happen, that the world will reject you. And there's this tension there because of that, but the world will also recognize you. Current culture will both dishonor you and honor you at the same time as a Christ follower. Now, the world will accuse you of doing wrong, so don't freak out. Don't be surprised. Just expect that. In, in a Christ-like, non-defensive way, you serve others, you love, you, you don't attack and withdraw from the current culture. 
then that's difficult. So this is this remarkable tension that Peter writes about in our text today, that the church is more than a building. It's people. We're living stones being built together. But then he identifies and says there is this tension between you and the current culture out there. Number three, what do we see here in our text is how do we maintain the tension between the church and the world? Usually, well, how many of you live with some amount of stress and tension in your life? I, I think most of us have, have that. And most of us, what we try to do is we try to relieve our stress or alleviate our tension. And so we practice self-care techniques, whatever that would be in your life. Maybe you work out. Maybe you do yoga. Um, maybe you listen to good music. Maybe you meditate or maybe you medicate. Or maybe you recreate. I'm not really sure. But you want to get away from the tension and the stress in your life. And I don't think Peter is encouraging Christians to escape the tension between the church and the world. He's not saying go this way or go that way. I think he's saying how do we maintain this tension between the church and the current culture. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 6, Peter says, Come to him the living stone, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And I think that's the key to maintaining this tension that we have. What does it mean to come to the living, chosen, and precious cornerstone? The first thing that we could do is this. Admit that Jesus is the cornerstone. You admit that Jesus is the cornerstone. We, we sang about it this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, it says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, everybody's building something. Everyone's building their life, some kind of life that they're building, and you build it on a cornerstone whether you realize it or not. If you aren't building your life on Jesus, you are building on something. A cornerstone is like a foundation of a building. Everything is lined up and rests on the cornerstone. If a cornerstone is unstable in any way, the whole building's unstable. The whole building could, could tremble. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, he says, you could tell what your cornerstone is. When things are falling apart in your life, Luther says, what do you look to as the ultimate cause of that falling apart? He says, when you find it, that's your cornerstone. I gathered a couple of weeks ago with some of my best friends just for a dinner party. And it's just a, um, it's a, just a wonderful time to be with friends that you've known for many, many years. And um, his, uh, one of my friend's daughters just graduated from high school, and she's uh, got accepted into Stanford University. She's going to be a freshman next month at Stanford. And if you know anything about Stanford, then you know that this is a, this is a big accomplishment. And so we're talking, and I asked her, are you excited? And she says, oh, yeah. And I said, are you nervous? And she said, oh, yeah. And I said, what are you excited about? And she said, oh, getting away from home and moving into my dorm and meeting new, making new friends and just being away and, and studying. And this is what I've been dreaming of for, for four or five years. I said, wow. I said, what are you nervous about? And she said this. She said, I'm both nervous and excited. And she said, I'm nervous because everyone else, all the other students, were the top students in their high school. Every other one was a valedictorian. 
And so she's sitting in a class where everyone was number one in their high school class. And she's never experienced that before. Now, I know Jesus is her cornerstone, but imagine this if your grades were your cornerstone. The question is, who or what are you building your life on? Is it success in the workplace? Maybe it's your appearance. That's your cornerstone, your appearance. Or maybe it's high-achieving children, like successful kids in sports or academics or arts. And maybe it's a good report card, a, a good GPA. Maybe that's your cornerstone. Or maybe it's a comfortable retirement. I'm all set quit my job, retired, I'm set. Peter writes in verse 6, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Peter's saying, if you build your life on any other cornerstone other than Jesus, you're going to be put to shame one day. You can't just admit and believe that Jesus is your cornerstone. You have to, the second part is, you need to value the precious cornerstone. Make that cornerstone precious to you. And so I think that that's important for us to figure out. Is Jesus as the cornerstone precious to you? You say, I believe that Jesus is my cornerstone, but is he, is he precious to you? And what does this mean? How about this? I, I got this story. Let's say you go to the doctor for your annual checkup. So you go to the doctor, you have your annual checkup, and he takes blood and does all the tests and, and all of that. And you go away, but then the doctor calls you and says, please come back, I want to talk to you. And everyone says, "Uh uh-oh, you know. And so you go to the doctor, and he says, I have some bad news for you. He tells you that you have a terminal illness, a terminal disease, that you're going to die from this very, very soon. That's bad news. But he says, but I have some good news. But there is is a medication that will cure your illness. That's good news. But then there's bad news. The insurance that you have does not cover the cost of the medication. And the medication is very costly, very expensive. And so the doctor, she she tells you how much the medication is. And so in your mind, you're sort of calculating, do I have enough money for this medication? And then you realize that you'll have to sell your car that you just paid off to get that medication. And then the the doctor says, if you aren't cured in the first round of treatments, you'll have to have two times the medication, and if that doesn't work, it's three times and then four times. By the way, you'll have to be on the medication, this medication, on a maintenance dose for the rest of your life if you want to continue to live. And so then you calculate not just your car that you just paid off, but then you just paid off your house too, and you calculate, wow, if I have to go that far, I'll have to sell my house for that medicine too. Now, the doctor says it's extremely expensive, it's, it's extremely costly. Would you like to start the medical treatment that will ultimately save your life? And you say, yes, of course, right? Knowing that starting the treatment will mean that you'll have to walk around or take an Uber, or if, as long as you can afford the Uber, I guess, or uh, public transportation. You'll have to walk everywhere. And then you'll also, if it doesn't cure it in the first round and then the maintenance dose, you'll have to eventually sell your house and you'll have to find a new place to live. 
And so you think to yourself, what good will my car do or my house if I'm dead, right? Right? And suddenly that medication is precious to you and that all the other things in your life are expendable. And this is what it means that Jesus is precious. He's the precious cornerstone to you. And until he's precious to you, he cannot be your cornerstone. The living stone is rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. So come to Jesus as the rejected one. See how and why he was rejected. He came to his own, but his own knew him not. He was the ultimate alien in our world. Jesus' family rejected him. His friends abandoned him. On the cross, his father turned his back towards him, and he was rejected by all, and he endured the cross. Why? Because he knew what his mission was, and obeying the Father was precious to him. Admit that Jesus is your cornerstone. Value Jesus as the precious cornerstone, and the last is this, unite with the cornerstone. This is how you maintain this tension between the church and the current culture. Unite with the cornerstone. The cornerstone is not only the foundation, but all the other stones need to line up to the cornerstone. If the cornerstones were off, if that corner brick is off, all the other bricks are going to be off. If the cornerstone was strong, the, the other stones are going to be strong. When we built that house in Mexico, even though it was a small house that we built in Ensenada, Mexico, for that single mom, and we built all the panels out here in the parking lot and laid that, built that foundation, and then we brought it up to Mexico and Ensenada, and I was there with the team just this year, and, and, and I, I never did this before, and I'm not a construction guy, but we laid out that foundation, and Norm Lenders, who is the, the supervisor, the, the lead on that ministry, he, he, he's showing me what to do, and he shows me the the foundation that's on blocks, and he puts a level on the corner, and he says, you see how that's level? And we stood there at the corner of this small house that we were building, and he, in his own construction way, he kind of just said, right here. That's kind of all that he said. And I was like, okay, but he said, right here. And what he was really telling me is, if this is right, if this corner is right, we're basing everything on this corner right here. If this is level, if this is straight, if this is right, everything else is going to be okay. That's the cornerstone. If the cornerstone is living, you're living. If the cornerstone is honored, you're honored. If the cornerstone has nothing to be ashamed of, you have nothing to be ashamed of. And here's what it means to be a Christian. The moment that you unite with Jesus... The cornerstone. You embody the truth that he lived a life that I wasn't qualified to live. That he died a death that I should have died. And I'm absolutely accepted by the Father because he's accepted by the Father. And this is the secret of living in the tension between the church and the world that Peter's calling us to. If you're loved and you're accepted by God, then you can go out as the church. If you're loved and accepted by God, you can go out as the church, not to say, who do I want to hang out with? But you are thinking in your mind, who needs someone to hang out with? You don't think, who's easy to love out there? Who do I really love? 
but you can go out and say, who needs love? You don't go out and think, who is someone who won't hurt me or offend me? But rather, you go out and say, who can I offer grace to? When you're united and valuable with a valuable and precious cornerstone, you willingly love people who misunderstand you. When you're united with a precious cornerstone, you willingly forgive people who hurt you. And when you're united with that cornerstone, you willingly accept people who reject you. Jesus, the precious cornerstone, was a man who, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to, the, to him who judges justly. Christians are oftentimes viewed and seen by the current culture as having exclusive views because we think we have the truth. We have Jesus, who is the truth. Because if the truth is a man dying for his enemies, not attacking and not assimilating, but serving the people around him and drawing close enough so that they might see the glory of God and being willing to take all of this suffering on him graciously. And if we can embody that, this is the vitality of the church. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Amen? Let's pray together.